Welcome to The Lisa Show. Serums, creams, and oils saturate the skincare market today. But have you ever thought about how your lifestyle affects your complexion? Instead of buying expensive products to keep your skin looking young, eating healthy and staying active can actually help your skin stay vibrant. Ugh, isn't that the answer to everything, right? Diet and exercise? Well, joining us today is dermatologist Dr. Cynthia Bailey to share exactly how living a healthy lifestyle can help us have healthy skin. Welcome, Dr. Bailey. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, today there's so many different products to do with skincare, uh, but a lot of your research deals with leading a healthy lifestyle in order to have healthy skin. Can you tell us about that connection? Well, your skin wraps your body, and for better or worse, your skin is going to reflect what's going going on physiologically inside. And so if you're not taking good care of your body and your overall physiology, your skin's going to reflect that with a sallow complexion, um, dull skin, circles under your eyes. Mm. You're just not going to look your best. I, I think we hear a lot of different like buzz uh, foods, almost like a new product, you know, eat this and then, you know, drink that and, and that will be the one cure-all. Uh, so help us debunk some of these myths and point us in the right direction. What are the best foods for our complexion specifically? Well, I like to encourage people to think about their diet in an overall um, perspective because you can't put a lot of junk food into yourself and then expect that eating blueberries is going to compensate. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it's really, it's really, you know, what is the fuel behind your entire physiology? That's going to play out on your complexion. And so think comprehensively about what you're eating during the day and try to create a proportional, um, positive diet that drives your 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 body as fuel, and then you can put in a little treat here or there, but don't do the opposite. Right? Yeah. The eat the junk food and then expect yeah a handful of blueberries to sort of do the trick. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, are there yeah. specific foods though that that have been scientifically proven to be really bad for your skin? Well, um, clearly a high glycemic diet is pro-inflammatory. And so what that mouthful means is that foods which um, your body quickly translates into sugar and, your, and that, that your physiology has to respond to with a big surge of insulin in order to sort of get it all packed away and um, out of the bloodstream, those foods are very pro-inflammatory, both for your skin and for your you know, overall physiology, certainly they drive diabetes, they drive cardiovascular disease, and they will also drive, you know, skin inflammatory disorders such as acne. Okay. So, so mm. high, yeah, so high glycemic foods are clearly out. And, you know, if you look at the, at the standard American diet, mm -hmm. we have a lot, of, a lot of high glycemic foods in the things that we enjoy eating, such as refined um, carbohydrates, white flours. So, you know, don't just think about candy bars and ice cream and mm -hmm. cakes. Think, think about, um, you know, white um, flour-based foods as opposed to whole flour-based foods. So the whole grain is going to be um, digested more slowly, and your, ins your, your blood sugar spike will be less, and therefore your body's not going to need to respond with a big emergent output of insulin to get it all, all that um, yeah. energy stored away quickly. I think that a lot of the uh, the the common advice out there is, you know, stay away from fried foods for acne. Is there mm -hmm. any connection or is it really the refined carbohydrates no, that you're talking about? It, exactly. It's the refined carbohydrates. Huh. So, um, yeah, we, we don't actually have good science linking the greasy and oily foods to acne, but we have very good scientific evidence linking a high glycemic diet or or the refined carbs, sugar, white flour, mm. you know, um, you know, potato chips. It's not so much the oil, it's the potato storage. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So the stuff that we enjoy in the, in the pizza, it's not so much all well, the sausage, although certainly, you know, that has other ramifications for your health. 
but the the high glycemic aspect of the dough. Okay. Uh, So I had a dermatologist once tell one of my kids who was struggling with acne to avoid milk and dairy products. Is is there any connection between that? Yes, there is. What is it? That's the other interesting new scientific development with diet and skin disease. So, so milk has a special um, metabolic pathway when we digest it that leads to hormonal events at what we call the pilosebaceous unit, which is also known as a core. Um, and uh, it causes an elevation of insulin-like growth factor that gets translated into um, androgens, which are hormones like testosterone. So hmm. the male hormone testosterone is altered at the pore when you drink milk and it fuels the development of acne. Okay. Yes, it's a unique, it's unique Hmm. and it's somewhat counterintuitive because we think milk does a body good, (laughs) but unfortunately it doesn't do our pores good. And so, um, and, and, and also counterintuitively, skim milk is worse than whole fat milk. Oh, why is that? Yes, exactly. So you can see that it's not actually something you can intuitively figure out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and actually cheese and yogurt may not be as bad as milk. Okay, that's really interesting. It's counterintuitive, I think, to the messages that we get um, totally. about that. So I'm glad that, that we're talking to you, Dr. Cynthia Bailey, about how a healthy lifestyle can lead to healthy skin. There's, uh, you know, I, we started this conversation by talking about all the different serums. And, you know, before when I was a kid, it was like, you know, make sure you moisturize. <laughs> and then it's like right. a special face wash. And now it's a face wash and a serum and a toner and, a, you know, all these kinds of things. And, and sometimes it can feel overwhelming. So I appreciate that we're having this discussion about like the overall health that not only helps our skin, but helps our body as well. And I don't want to just give a list of don'ts. I want to, you know, turn our, our attention perfect, perfect. to the good stuff. You met, mentioned beta carotene rich foods in your research. Uh-huh. Can you tell us what those benefits are? Well, beta carotene will give you an instant glow. So if you if you eat a diet with a lot of beta carotene in it, and beta carotene is the orange in our vegetables. So think about carrots, um, uh, sweet potatoes, winter squash, and even kale. I mean, did you know that kale is loaded with beta carotene, but you don't see the orange because there's so much chlorophyll hiding the orange? Oh, I didn't so know that. Kale, totally. So if you if you eat a lot of kale you will notice that your skin goldens up within a week or so. So in the winter, as we get sort of pale and sallow and start to feel like we really could use a sunny vacation, you can actually warm your complexion up by going on a um, beta-carotene-infused diet, eating, you know, carrots, juicing uh, carrots, uh, oven-roasting sweet potatoes and winter squash, is one of my favorite and really simple ways to get a lot of beta carotene into my diet and then making a kale salad or stir frying sauteing some kale um, or juicing it if you can if you can um, handle that um, that will golden up your skin instantly and studies have shown that um, when when photographs were shown to people of tan skin, suntan skin versus beta carotene, dietarily infused skin. The beta carotene glow was considered more attractive than the suntan glow. So don't be tempted. <laughs> How interesting. Bed. Yeah, don't be tempted to go to the tanning bed. That doesn't give you any, any sun protection anyways. And it's actually not nearly as attractive. It's got a more ashy color to the skin, a sort of a brawny ashy color. But a warm beta carotene infused glow is actually more attractive. So if you have a wedding or a special event where you want to look really your best, you know, for a couple of weeks before, eat a lot of beta carotene. And, and supplements aren't the same. you got to actually put the foods in your mouth, chew and swallow. <laughs> I, that's funny. Um, do, do, you, do you hear that a lot in your line of work? And people yeah. are like, well, just tell me what supplements to eat. Absolutely. Absolutely. They want to die, what I call a dietary bypass. It's like, nope, sorry, you can't. You actually have to put the good foods in your mouth, chew and swallow. <laughs> there are other aspects of a healthy lifestyle that can affect our skin. Um, how does sleep affect our, uh, our skin? Well, there's another study that shows that when you're sleep deprived, and that's all relative. I mean, some people need a lot of sleep and other people need less sleep. But when you're sleep deprived, your your complexion is more sallow. You have circles under your eyes. 
you really do look sleep deprived, which mm-hmm. is why we can we can actually tell. We can look at someone and say, "Oh gosh, you look exhausted." Yes, actually. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so so sleep really does um, help you to look your best, and certainly. The stress of not sleeping enough, I mean, stress can drive acne and other inflammatory skin problems. Mm. And so when you're not getting enough sleep, your body's sort of going into more of a stress physiology. And that isn't going to help you look good either. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What about physical activity? Well, that'll boost your appearance. So I've been married to the same man for 40 years. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. And every time I get a good workout, he says, oh, you look great. (laughs) Well, yes, I got a good cardio workout. You know, my my cheeks are rosy. My um, skin's circulation is, you know, infused with good, you know, vitality. You know, it increases peripheral vascular circulation. And so, yeah, we do actually look better if we get a good cardio workout. And so, again, I like to tell people, if you need to look your best, you know, go get a workout before the event. Yeah, and then you eat know? a bunch of carrots. You get your bed of carotene. Eat a bunch of carrots, get a good night's sleep. Don't let anyone stress you out. Right. <laughs> You're living your best skin life at that point. Absolutely. If, if it takes your skin to get you to do the things that are good for you, then that's actually fantastic. Right. No, don't question it. Go with it. I love it. Uh, how much of a role do genetics play in our in our skin? Oh, well, you know, you can't deny that. I mean, some people are just born with dark circles under their eyes, you know? I mean, dark circles under their eyes are partly vitality, partly, you know, exhaustion, and partly just doggone genetics. And so there's just not much you can do about that. But you you can either kind of give in to that or you can, you know, do these vitality enhancing lifestyle choices to try to to fight the dark circles, the sallow complexion, the tendency for wrinkles. I mean, some people just have skin that responds to ultraviolet light by breaking down collagen in a sort of lumpy way. It's Mm. called solar elastosis. And other people don't. You know, and certainly the melanin amount in our skin is genetic. I Mm -hmm. mean, the more melanin you have, the better your skin's going to stand up to environmental UV exposure. The, The less melanin, the more likely you are to to suffer, you know, from UV exposure, wrinkles, hmm. sun freckle, etc. So that's all genetically yeah. determined. Yeah, and the tendency for cellulite. And I mean, a lot of that just really is genetic. And, and, and there's not much we can do about the genetic makeup we're given, but there's a lot we can do about how we either let it sort of make us look encumbered by our, our genetic gifts, or we can, you know, sort of boost the vitality of them with our lifestyle choices yeah. and our skincare choices. Yeah. Being healthy, but not being totally obsessed. You know, when you hear things yeah. like, well, cellulitis or or cellulose or cellulite or melasma yeah. or, you know, whatever your skin condition, acne, wrinkles, yeah. uh, propensity to stretch marks. I mean, people talk about all different kinds of skin conditions as if if there's one pill that you can take and it will go away. But there's so many factors at play. We're just talking about having a healthy lifestyle. Um, You've probably seen a lot. And and of all the things that you've studied and the people you've talked to, what's the most interesting thing that that you have found between this connection with a healthy lifestyle and, and our skin? Well... I actually like watching people in the grocery store and looking at what they're pushing in their shopping cart and how they actually look. I mean, how does their skin look? Huh. Is there just sort of just the whole aspect of how they carry themselves, mm-hmm. their I would call it their body habitus, sort of how their body is are you know, you can make a correlation many times between what's in a person's shopping cart and and how they look except of course i have a big vegetable garden so you're not going to see right. vegetables in my shopping cart because they're coming out of my garden oh, but, you know which is better. the most part if you're seeing a lot of donuts and sugary drinks you can look up and watch the person pushing the cart and you can see how that's working for them hmm. and not in a judgment sort of a way but in a way that says well i'm connecting the dots here and if I want a different outcome, I'm going to make different choices. Maybe I'm going to go put those donuts back. Yeah. And maybe instead I'm going to go hit the fruit and veggie aisle. 
or the whole grain aisle, or maybe I'm going to get brown rice instead of white rice, you know, uh, it, olive oil instead of a lot of potato chips and butter and, you know, Cheetos, mm-hmm. you know, and, and roast my roast my winter squash instead of, you know, having a, a pre-prepared packaged meal. Yeah. So making yeah. those, it, taking a look at what's in our shopping cart um, instead of buying, you know, additional products and supplements and creams and lotions and serums is a. It, and the same thing at looking at your dinner plate. I mean, yeah. look at your dinner plate. I mean, how does your dinner plate? I like to tell people that sixty to eighty percent of their their meals, their food that goes into their body during the day should really be more in the in the the uh, the fruits and veggies and the nuts, seeds, and whole grains part of the food pyramid, and the the treats need to fit on top. So I'd rather see people eating beans and filling up on beans in their salad than a whole bunch of the bread served at the table. Yeah. You know, it's it's just different. I mean, that's your body reads it differently. The bread's going to spike your blood sugar, and you're going to get a big insulin surge. The beans are going to curate your intestinal microbiome, which are all those little good probiotic organisms in your intestine that are actually becoming more and more understood as essential for health, and that includes skin health and appearance. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Cynthia, and for sharing um, your research. We appreciate it. It's my pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Dr. Cynthia Bailey is a board-certified dermatologist based in Northern California. To learn more about skincare and get updates on skin health, you can visit her website, drbaileyskincare.com, and sign up for her newsletter. You're listening to The Lisa Show. We'll be right back. This is The Lisa Show. Now, if you are like me, when you think about work, Sometimes you get stressed. You feel it in your shoulders, your neck. Your brain is on fire with it and you can't run away. Every time you go to work, you think about work or even say the word work, that stress returns. I feel it especially when I'm coming back from a long weekend. So we might all be experiencing this on Monday. But if you want to be successful, you have to keep taking on more, right? Well, Dr. Ivan Meisner, a PhD in organizational behavior, says the reality is the more that you say yes to things that don't excite you, the less you will accomplish and the more burned out and unhappy you will become. So how can we say no while still being successful and not looking like a jerk? We've invited Dr. Misner on the show today to tell us how. Welcome, doctor. Hey, thank you so much. I appreciate being on. Uh, you know, uh, Steve Jobs, was a, you know, he was a pretty successful person. I would say said, so. He, he once said uh, that he was more proud of the things he said no to than the things that he said yes to at Apple, because it's a, a matter of discernment and understanding what's really critical for you in business or in your personal life, either way. And I think all too often we become addicted to yes. And I get that. You know, I, I'm the founder of a, a networking organization, BNI, and I've got all these networking people, and I, I love to say yes, but I can't always say yes. And so the key is to learn how to say no without being a jerk or, or worse. You know, a, a certain phrase that I've seen all over the place is the saying no to some opportunities means saying yes to others. And and uh, and, and I try and, and think, yes, I'm on board. Okay. And I even <laughs> say yes to that. And then I quickly am like, ah, that's too hard. I'll just say yes to everything and figure my way through it. <laughs> well, here's one of my favorite ways to, to say no. It, and I use it, unfortunately, I use it... Um, with people that who, who know me. And so as I do this interview, they're going to go, he did that to me like three weeks ago. Yeah, hey, wait it's a minute. Great, it's a great technique. You say, you know, if I said yes to that, I'm afraid I'd let you down. But what I love about that is you're not even saying the word no, but you're saying, if I said yes, I, I'm afraid I'd let you down. And then explain why. You know, I'm, I'm drinking water from a fire hose right now. I'm an overload. Uh, this isn't my area of expertise. I know somebody else who could do a better job at it. These, you know, you can give those follow-up reasons, but it's a great technique that makes people feel cared for, yet you just told them no. Yeah. Brilliant. So I think the key here is that you got to understand the difference between an opportunity and a distraction, which is kind of what you were saying earlier, is you got to know what, what's an opportunity for you, for the business, for your department, for you personally, and what's really a distraction. And what are the things that you just, um, 
you, you, you can't do and stay on mission. Uh, I get, uh, in, in BNI, I get a lot of people who say, oh, BNI is great, you get a lot of referrals, but what we need to uh, learn how to sell. So BNI needs to teach people how to sell. Well, that's not our mission. And there are people whose mission is to teach people how to sell far better than us. And so we would rather refer our members to people who do that and do it well, which is another technique, refer them to someone else. And you don't refer them to someone else just to get them off your plate, but you refer them to someone else whose mission is that or whose expertise is in that area. And uh, if you do it appropriately, you have a lot of people that are happy with you. You become a connector because the person you're referring to says, yeah, I love doing this, or that's right up my alley. And they're willing to do it. And the person that you've referred is happy because they get whatever it is they're trying to have done. I, I, th- I think in concept I get this one, but but let me push back a little bit because for me, so, uh, you know, in addition to doing this radio show, I do some entrepreneurial type things. And, and the the issue that I have is an opportunity versus a distraction is I, I sort of uh, work myself up into this lather of like, well, this may be an opportunity where I'll meet someone that I don't know who could connect me to this other thing. But I just don't know that that wouldn't be a, a you know my opportunity. So I have to say yes to everything. Well, opportunities have to you have to focus on what your values and your mission uh, is in order to determine what opportunities are realistic opportunities. If you say yes to every opportunity, you're going to be overwhelmed. You're going to burn yourself out. Contrary to popular belief, you can't have it all. <laughs> you can't. And I, so I love those segments to you when it's like, how do you have this and have it all? And I just want to scream and be like, no, that's that's a fallacy. You can't have it all. You can't. So one of the things we talk about in the book that, that we're not covering today is the values. You have to get good with your values. If you don't know what your personal values are, you uh, will not be able to discern what's an opportunity or what's a distraction. And so once you have your values down, then it's much easier to make that determination. Now, it might be your personal values. It might be your corporate values or your corporate mission. The example I gave of saying no to sales training is a corporate value, a corporate mission. You know, our mission is to help people increase each other's business through referrals, not to teach people how to sell. And so when you know your mission, you know your values, then you, you know what's a distraction. It's interesting. As I'm, as I'm looking over some of these points, they explain that you don't do that you don't do that particular thing seems to be one of real value, uh, one that, you know, being candid um, with the person saying, you know, I don't do that thing. Um, yeah. So valuable, so valuable. But it, but I think there's also a little bit of uh, of ego that we attach to something where we want to be all things to all people. So to to say, hey, we don't do that you know, it kind of strikes us in our core going, oh, maybe I can what's, learn how to do that and be able to help that person. What's the other half of that saying? Being all things to all people. If you try to be all things to all people, you end up being nothing to anyone. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's a lot of truth to that. And this is, this, we're trying to give strategies to kind of avoid that kind of thing. So if you, you want to say no to something, here's an example of um, how I say no on something very, you know, very firmly. Um, about six years ago, I had a cancer scare and I completely changed uh, the way I ate and went into remission uh, without surgery. And, and so I just eat certain things and don't eat certain things. And when people say to me, oh, you've got to try this uh, piece of cake. It's amazing. Or this brownie is incredible. I say, uh, you know, I, I don't eat sugar, but thank you very much. No, no, you just one, just one bite. It's okay, <laughs> just one bite. Uh, and I look at him and I say, well, okay, just one bite. And they'll say, yes. I say, great, you have it because yeah. I don't eat sugar. <laughs> So you just got to stand firm. You got to put a line in the sand and say, that's not what I do. Uh, one of your, your points, and we're talking with Dr. Ivan, and I want to make sure I'm saying this correctly. Is it Misner? Is that how you say it? It's Meisner. Meisner. I'll, okay. I'll respond to Misner. No, I'll say Meisner. It's, it's <laughs> after all the way it should be pronounced. Uh, Dr. Ivan Meisner, about being able to say no and not look like a jerk, and none of us want to, is y- you talk about the phrase, don't Seinfeld it. Can you talk about that yeah. a little bit? So I love this uh, concept because it, it, don't Seinfeld it, uh, is about the fact that uh, Seinfeld had these really, it was a, the TV series Seinfeld and, and, and they would talk about how these characters would go off on some crazy subterfuge or complicated ruse that ends up getting them in more trouble than if they'd just been honest in, in the first place, you know, they, 
oh, I can't make that. Uh, you know, I've got uh, my cat needs a whiskerectomy, and then uh, you know, I, I think I need to go in and get an oil change, and they make up all this stuff, mm-hmm. and they, the characters would always get into more trouble. Be honest, be direct, be concise, uh, and 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 follow your values and mission, and you'll be fine. Yeah, it, it seems so simple, but I'm betting there's a time where you've Seinfelded it that you could share with us that it ended up where you would have just been easier to tell the truth in the first place or just be candid. Uh, you know, I think everybody has. And, uh, you know, I, I have absolutely earned all this gray hair that I have. <laughs> and and I've learned, you know, you know how to address these kinds of things. I wish I had this book. This, this comes from a book called Who's in Your Room. I wish I had this book when I was 17. Mm. Because it, it's really about making good choices in your life. And saying no is part of that process of, saying, uh, of making good choices. We've all made these mistakes. Forgive yourself. Learn how to do it better and move on. It's it's funny to me that as as a people we don't take no for an answer, uh, and we often reward that right. Like that guy that we're promoting to vice president, he never takes no for an answer, and and that's you know we kind of give him that that badge of of uh, persistence or whatever. But we as um, you know as coworkers, when when someone says no, we should we should learn to respect that and and uh, and allow it to have the weight that they're trying to have it create yeah I, I think the yes you're correct and i think the key here is the context when you understand the context uh it's very important so i've seen bosses who had uh, the reputation of never taking no for an answer take no for an answer when there's a good reason for it where where people get a reputation for not taking no for an answer is when there's a bad reason for it or no reason for it. This particularly in customer service when, you know, the, the, the company is just not doing something that they really should be doing and you don't take no for an answer. Uh, I get that. But when you say to somebody, that's just not my area of expertise. And I'm, I'm really, I, I'm afraid I'd let you down and I don't want to do that. You're a friend. I don't want to do that. And then you combine that with the other technique that I alluded to, uh, which is, let me refer you to somebody I know who does do that. Mm-hmm. Now, both parties feel like they won that. Yeah. The person who never takes no for an answer says, okay, that'll work. And they get what they want, but they get it from somebody else, not from you. Still, though, saying no to people is something that, you know, I'm sure that there are people that are listening that are like, yeah, yeah, Dr. Meisner makes sense, makes sense. But no, how can I say maybe or later or... <laughs> And, you know, like we just we just have such a struggle in saying yeah. no. If you want to wimp out, you could do that. But there are ways of doing this that, that work. I mean, here's another technique. Propose something else. If you're unable to do something that you're being asked to do, offer to do something else instead. Real life example, uh, a nonprofit came to a restaurant catering service. They had outside catering as well. And they said, hey, would you guys cater this nonprofit event that we've got. And they, of course, they wanted him to do it for free. And the company was too young to be able to afford to do a big uh, nonprofit event like that. And so they said, you know, we, we, we can't do that, but you know what we'd love to do is give you a gift certificate for dinner for two. Hmm. And the nonprofit said, oh yeah, that'd be great too. Okay, thanks. So, you know, there are ways of, of repositioning what you can do that will satisfy somebody and you're not quite using the word no, but it, it, you're, you're you know, directing them in a, in a different direction. It works for you and works for them. That's the key here. If you're constantly saying yes, you just your life is going to be chaos. And uh, you know, that's really what this book is about, is you know, how to create a life of, of harmony, a life where it's not chaotic. We're all nodding our heads going, yes, my life is chaotic. Yes, I do say yes too much. For, for people um, that, that, I mean, this information just resonates so much with them, but it's become habitual that they say yes, that they don't yeah. know how to break out of the yes mode. What, what is that, that first step or how do we have the courage to, to take a step into nodem? So it, it really comes back to this concept of understanding your values. When I talk to people about their values, I say, uh, you know, give me your top seven values. Now, what is, let's break that down a little but bit. Hang we, on. Oh, they, go ahead. They look at you like a deer in the headlights. Yeah. They're like, what are you talking about? I don't know. Honesty. Great. That's one. Give me six more. 
people don't know their own personal values. You can't make a decision on what is good for you or not good for you if you don't know what your personal values are. So here's a way to start. Start with your deal breakers. So let me ask you, what are, what are some deal breakers in working with other people or having a professional or a personal relationship with other people? Give me one or two deal breakers. Uh, like being micromanaged is a deal breaker for me. I can't handle that. People, when I ask for deal breakers, they come up with it right now. Yeah. Values are harder, and mm-hmm. you've got to go deeper to think about what those values are. But deal breakers are great. So my, one of my deal breakers is drama, people that are dripping in drama. Yeah. <laughs> and we, look, we all have a little drama, right? But sure. I'm talking about these people that are just drama-filled. And so that's one of my values. And when people who are dripping in drama want me to do something, I, I don't do it. I say no. So and. So a deal breaker, then you kind of twisted and and made it a value, right? Because I I thought we were talking about deal breakers, but then avoiding drama, that becomes your value? It does become a value, but for me, there are other uh, values that are more positive. The deal breaker is sort of the negative stuff and what you will or what you won't won't tolerate. Your values are more what what you're striving for. So for me, what I'm striving for are things like um, part of my values are lifelong learning. Uh, uh, positive attitude. I want to work with people who have a positive attitude that aren't toxic. Um, uh, Accountability is a a personal value of mine. So these are values that I have. Here's a value. You can have values as couples. My wife and I have a a, a value of uh, connecting with other couples, having, uh, you know, professional personal relationships with other couples who love and respect each other. Love and respect. Now, it, it, nobody loves and respects each other all the time. I mean, but but for the most part, we want to hang out with people who treat each other respectfully or treat each other in a loving way, and that's a couple's value that we have. And so it's possible to do that. Now we have those things. Then you have what we we call your your metaphorical doorman, and your metaphorical doorman is your conscious and subconscious mind who screens out people and activities that are not resonant with those values. It it seems it it seems to me that like the hardest part for me would be like I I could sit down and do this exercise of like now I know my values and you know I want to be able to say no but but because I'm I've been in a lifelong of yes that my auto response you know before I can get the doorman to say no or this isn't in alignment with your values I've already said yes and I'm three steps down the road. All right, so let's put this in context. We'll, we'll go back a little earlier in the in, in the book. To, to the context of where, where I'm coming from with this. Imagine you live your life in one room mm-hmm. and that one room has only one door and that one door is an enter only door so that when you let people into your room or into your life, they're there forever. Mm. You can never get them out. Now, luckily it's a metaphor, but if it were true, would you be more selective about the people you let into your life? A hundred million percent. <laughs> then why aren't we? Right. Why aren't we? And I would argue with you that it's more than a metaphor. And here's why. Now, I want you to think of somebody who uh, was in your life because people say to me, I can get them out of my life. It's, a, you know, it's not true. All right. Uh-huh. So I want you to think of somebody who was in your life that you got out of your life. I want you to think about the things they did to you. And I'm not going to ask you to name the person here on okay. live video, but, but think of somebody that you got into that was into your life and you got them out. They were toxic. They were difficult. Do you have somebody in mind? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Can, can you think of, uh, you don't even have to say what it is, but can you think of something that they did to you that really angered you? Oh, yeah. Okay, so if they're still in your head, they're still in your room. Huh. And they will be there forever. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So we interviewed Daniel, uh, Dr. Daniel Amen, who did the PBS specials on uh, neuroscience and, and psychiatry. And he said, the relationships that you have with people, their fingerprints are all over your brain, mm. and they will be forever. And you will always go back to those good experiences or bad experiences that you've had with people that you let into your room. Mm. And you've got to understand, the room is, you know, if you take your, your index finger and put it on your right temple, your right index finger on your right temple, and your left index finger on your left temple, that everything in between is your room. Mm-hmm. It's your head. It's everybody you let into your life. And so these are the reasons why you have to get to know. You have to learn how to say no. So you understand the room concept. You then get good with your values. 
you train your doorman, your conscious and subconscious mind, and then you learn how to say no. That's the whole process. There's more, but that's part of the process. That's a that's a pretty amazing uh, process, and I appreciate uh, the steps that you've given us for saying no without looking like a jerk and giving us that concept of of having a room and, and what that room is. Uh, you're the author of the book, Who's in Your Room, a book that teaches us how to let all the right things into our lives. Uh, you can learn more about Dr. Ivan Meisner and his book, and also about BNI uh, by going to IvanMeisner.com. Thank you for being with us, Doctor. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Lisa Show. This is The Lisa Show. Okay, what snack can jump up to three feet on its own when heated? What does the American, the average American eat 45 quarts of in one year? What is it, Richie? It's, it's uh, popcorn, I would it hope. Is. I, yeah. <laughs> I don't I mean, know what else would it feel like. Another food may pop up that we just haven't experimented with. Though I will say this. I have never thought of my uh, popcorn consumption in quarts. Yeah, more like gallons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, is that... yeah. Or like handfuls that really didn't get in my mouth and got a little bit all over my mouth. Yeah. And then like in my stomach, especially in the movie theater, like on. That's the best part of popcorn for me. Really? Yeah, because I put... And you'll have to tell me how your experience oh, of eating I, popcorn I is. I put too much in my hand. Yeah. <laughs> and then I sort of eat around my hand. Uh, Half that of guy. it falls onto my, you know, onto my chest, onto my stomach. So then I finish the bag of popcorn at the theater and I'm like, oh, I wish I had more popcorn. Lo and behold, I look, I look down and there's a whole half a bag right. on my shirt. It's a delightful treat that keeps on giving. Uh, I cannot uh, overstate how much I love popcorn and how much we love popcorn in our house. We probably make it every day. Really? And I thought we were just like these sort of outliers, these weirdos that just loved popcorn so much. Um, it, it all started when I started dating my husband because he would eat popcorn all the time. And that was he told me when we first got married, I can only make one thing. I'm really sorry that I'm bringing to this marriage one meal, and it's popcorn. Mm. But it's wonderful. Uh, even when we lived in England, they didn't have microwave popcorn, but we we found a way to get it. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, no, it's so but, like, weird. Like black market popcorn? Yeah, it's just so weird. We just love it so much. My kids come home from school. Make some, the best way to eat popcorn is to, to pop it on the stove, mm-hmm. melt real butter mm-hmm. over it, yes. shake it up, and then put a handful of M&Ms on the top. Okay. Let them just sort of melt so, in so there. So you were like all kinds of popcorn. Oh, I'm all in. And so anyway, I, I, I really thought that we were weird this way of, of having this love for popcorn. But I have talked to several people just anecdotally. And I realized, and, and uh, I was talking to my friend Rob the other day. And he's like, oh, no, my wife like orders these special kinds of popcorn kernels uh-huh. that we have delivered by like the bag full. And I was like, I'm not alone in the world. <laughs> yeah. There's something about popcorn. You go to a movie theater. You don't have to convince anyone. No, to. There's no, no, no. Just Everyone's up something more... inviting about it. Popcorn is so popular yeah. that there is a national popcorn board. And we've invited Wendy Repel of uh, the National Popcorn Board here to talk to us about the Americans' love for popcorn. Welcome, Wendy. Well, hi there. Nice to be on. Good morning to you both. We love popcorn. We know you do as well, and that you that you're there's this national board. I'd love for you to tell us something fascinating that maybe the average person doesn't know about popcorn. Oh my goodness. Oh, I don't even know where to begin. So many things <laughs> to it. tell you. Well, really. we're listening. <laughs> okay, wow. Um, you know, I think one of the things that people don't realize is that popcorn is actually different from sweet corn and field corn, and the thing that we see right now all over the place because of Thanksgiving, which is flint corn. Um, you cannot take sweet corn and try to dry it out and pop, pop it. It doesn't work like that. And similarly, I think if you picked popcorn in its infancy stage, you may be able to eat it, but it's not the same sweetness as sweet corn. So people don't really always understand that there are actually different types of corn, and popcorn is unique in its ability because it gets to pop. Okay, so hold on. That means that there that. would be a particular field of popcorn. Is that? Am I understanding that right? Yes, you are absolutely correct. Absolutely, and and the the most uh, most people see field corn or dent corn, as it's mm-hmm. called, also, and that is the, the the majority of corn that you see if you live in the Midwest. If you've driven through um, at, at any point in time, that's what you're mostly seeing, and that's used to uh, as livestock feed, and it's used in other products as well, but primarily livestock feed. 
feed and it's a huge crop. Now you have these two smaller crops. One of them is sweet corn and the other one is popcorn. So yes, it's actually a very small specialty crop and it grows in its own field. You don't want it to cross pollinate mm -hmm. with other types of corn and so forth. So yes, it's its, its own unique pop or corn. I don't want to brag, but I am a corn husker <laughs> from Nebraska. <laughs> so I do know a thing or two about corn. Oh, I bow love down, it. Bow down, everyone. No, but my, my love of it is so great. How, how long have pe people been eating popcorn then? Uh, my goodness sakes, popcorn's been around for thousands of years. You know, you have to think about it. It's really a grass is what it is. Um, and like any other plant, it's been around for centuries. We don't really know when it began, how it began. Again, it's, it's just mm -hmm. part of the world, the natural world. But we know that for thousands of years, people have understood it. It's been around. Um, there have been explorers who have gone to, into one of my favorite, the Bat Caves of New Mexico, where they discovered some popcorn kernels and they carbon tested them uh -huh. and dated them back anywhere from four to five thousand years wow um yeah and, and there were also ancient burial sites that people have unearthed popcorn kernels again in an ancient burial site burial site where again you understand the connection is that they're burying things that are significant and important to them and i think in uh, northern chile they found some old kernels and they actually tested them they actually took them and um put them heated them up and they still popped even uh, though they were a thousand years old Kidding. Wow. Right. Not that you would want to eat it, I'm right, just saying. Sure. You know, might not it's be a little stale after a thousand years. A little years. stale. A little stale, <laughs> but still such an interesting yeah. thing. So so that's more of the ancient thing. Now whether or not people were really using it a lot, eating it a lot, you know, is anybody's guess. Um, we know that for the last couple of hundred years, in the 16th century, certainly, um, people were using popcorn in ceremonies. Um, the corn god itself has been, you know, part of Native American culture um, since I'm, I'm sure the beginning of, of their culture. Uh, so the corn god has been respected, has been um, revered. And so celebrating the corn, um, corn and corn gods have been around for a long time. And so we know back in the 1500s, 1600s, um, people were using popcorn in ceremonies. They figured out that it did pop. And how is anybody's guess? I'm guessing that, um, you know, somebody threw an old uh, dried up ear of corn into the fire as fuel and all of a sudden it started popping and they discovered it probably accidentally. But then they would use that and they would pop it up and they would put it in, they would make tassels out of it. They would tie it together and they would put it in their hair around their neck for ceremonial, um, hmm. you know, for ceremony. So it's it's been around for a while. Now, in terms of us as Americans and how we currently think of ourselves, um, I think really around the mid 1800s is when we began sort of using it um, in more recent um, in more recent history. So it's been around for thousands of years, was used in, you know, a number of hundreds of years ago. But I think more recently for us as a popular food, <laughs> there was a little joke, popular food. <laughs> I um, like it. Probably, I'm into probably, it. It was appreciated. Yeah. We uh, want you to know we were just going to let it slide, but it was very much appreciated. <laughs> it's so hard to talk sometimes about popcorn and not be, you know, completely corny, right? You just, they, it, oh. the stuff just falls out. I hold, know. hold on. Someone, <laughs> someone get a rim shot here. Too early it. in the morning, too early in the morning i know um so yeah so i think from the mid 1800s um uh, you know americans were using it finding it uh becoming fascinated with it because again uh, you know we think back to 1850 1860s there weren't a lot of things that were that entertaining at the time i can imagine so having a food that actually burst open in front of you right? and then you could eat it like that's just a fun thing and so i think people um, caught on to that element of fun and they started to cook it. They started to use it. And then, um, you know, really around the 1900s, it became started really started really to kick into our cultural thread, so to speak. We're talking with Wendy Rappel, who's a representative for the Popcorn Board. Yes, the Popcorn Board, a nonprofit <laughs> organization. Uh, we're talking about the history of popcorn and why it is, it is you know, America's I w I'm going to call it America's favorite snack. I know that's yeah. a bold yeah, statement, but I but we consume a lot in our home, so I might have <laughs> a skewed a skewed vision. Um, we're talking about the, the evolution of popcorn and how, how how has it been now associated with the holidays. 
You know, popcorn has been, a, again, I think if we look back into the 1800s where you, you don't have a lot of, um, you know, there's not a lot of uh, exciting things going on. We haven't had the movie hasn't been created yet. We don't have computers. You know, we have all these things to distract us. So I think there was a fascination with popcorn and that continued. People would have popcorn parties um, after the, you know, in the early 1900s, certainly mm-hmm. in Victorian eras, people would, you know, they understood that you could string it together and I, that might have been a holdover from Native Americans. I don't know. Um, but you could string it together. You could form it into balls. You could um, add confection um, caramel and sugar to it and make popcorn balls. So it kind of became um, a pastime. People would literally have popcorn parties and you would come over and you could, again, create your your, your masterpieces out of popcorn. And they were primarily decorated popcorn balls or, again, um, stringing it up to hang it around the household at, uh, at Christmas time. Um, you know, it, it also, I think it's a part of Thanksgiving lore, although there is no evidence that suggests that popcorn was actually at the first Thanksgiving. We know corn was mm-hmm. because corn was the general crop at the time, um, but not popcorn. I think that's something that someone along the way made up and it's a lovely thought. But the crop actually had not made its way east. It was more um, in the west. The southwest mm. is where it sort of originated from. So we don't believe that it actually had made its way eat at the time of the first Thanksgiving. So, um, you know, go ahead and eat it for Thanksgiving because why not? But yeah. it wasn't really part of the first Thanksgiving. Well, I think we have Charlie Brown to thank for that. Right. If you remember in the Thanksgiving <laughs> yeah. Charlie Brown special sure. where all he can make is toast <laughs> and popcorn and then... A few pretzel sticks yeah. and some jelly beans. And then there becomes... <laughs> not that I've watched that movie a million times. No. <laughs> and then there becomes the actual Thanksgiving dinner. You know, there there today is so many variations. You go to, you know, any area airport and there's kettle corn caramel corn uh chicago mix yeah you got yeah. the you got the m&ms <laughs> the people that put m- milk duds in it who yeah. have uh, you know the the confrontation between the fake butter and the real oh, butter don't and, get me started. And, mm-hmm. and we and we just go crazy with it of all the things that you do um being on the national popcorn board what what is the favorite thing that you love about what you do you know, well, what I, I love about what I do is there's so many things, honestly, but it's really, Lisa, you said it earlier, it's kind of a perfect food. And I think that I love talking to people about popcorn because it's a fun, it's a fun thing to talk about. And when people find out what I do for a living, um, they shake their head in disbelief. They um, <laughs> they smile. They ask me if I'm, you know, pulling their leg. Nope. Yes, there is a popcorn board and this is what I do. But I think we associate popcorn with good times. And I think yeah. that that's always at the heart of it. Um, you know, we, we've heard so many stories from people over the years, people who grew up poor, grew up in um, situations that were not great, that were a bit more dire. And popcorn was a staple in the house. It was one of those things that they would eat for dinner sometimes when there wasn't a lot of food to eat. Um, you know, even during the Depression, that was um, something mm-hmm. that happened. And the thing is, is that popcorn's a healthy whole grain. And so even though people didn't realize it necessarily at the time, they were actually eating something that was good for them and um, giving them some energy. So we've heard stories from people that talk about, again, the connective uh, piece of it, how their grandparents, their grandmother would make this fabulous popcorn recipe, or they remember as a child uh, doing so-and-so. So it, it's really a very mm. connective um, part of our culture. You know, we, we know it because of the movies. Um, but I Yeah, think where also- did that history start? That was uh, that was really wonderful luck. You know, we say that America's uh, one of America's oldest snack foods is popcorn, and it is indeed true. Peanuts are the other um, snack food. A long, long time ago, people would walk around with these large carts selling roasted peanuts. And when popcorn became popular, they realized that they could convert those poppers into also, or the the, pop, the peanut heaters into popcorn poppers. Mm. So now you have these guys who are pushing around 300-pound carts, uh, popcorn-making carts, around to places where people were gathered. Okay, again, we have to put ourselves in, you know, 100-plus years ago mm-hmm. in America and what that was like. So if there was a popular event going on, um, some kind of a political rally, vendors who were, of course, industrious and wanting to make money, they would go to where the crowds were at and they would sell popcorn and the vendors would you know, make money. And the same thing happened when the movie theater was invented. The talking picture you know, swept the nation and people were lining up 
um, you know, around the block to try to get in to see the moving picture, the talking picture eventually as well. And so again, same thing, these guys with these big carts would come around, they would sell their popcorn, people would eat it, they would bring it into the movie theater, they would create a mess. And obviously, eventually, the movie theater owners said, hmm, you know, there's yeah. something to that popcorn. People seem to really like it. So maybe we're going to actually sell it inside the movie theater where we can then make the profit as opposed to the guys outside. And so they started doing that um, not long after we hit the Depression. So, um, again, now people who are down and out, who have uh, very little going on for them, they're depressed, they're hungry, they're looking for escapes, they go into the movie theater, which was, again, still a very popular and exciting thing at the time, because movie theaters or the movies were cheap back then, and they could get a cheap five or ten cent bag of popcorn, so you could escape your woes for a few hours, and you would be fed for, um, you know, just a few cents. So we kind of have this very deep connection because of, um, because of that that era um, of being connected with popcorn and it kind of put us, got us out of a slump, so to speak. And it's been connected to movie theaters ever since. Wow. In honor of my ancestors, several times uh, a year, I will make an entire meal out of popcorn. Aww. Just sit down and it, I actually, uh, in I retrospect, I'm thinking about the ancestors. It's really just because I have a self-control <laughs> issue. Before we, before we let you go, uh, I want to know, you've probably tried lots of different popcorns. Oh, yeah. From lots of different ordinary makers. to gourmet. What's oh, your favorite? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you know I'm a sucker for sweet popcorn. So we have, you know, first of all, if you go to our website, you'll find literally hundreds of recipes. And I think the beauty about popcorn is that anything that you're in the mood for, you can mix it up, melt it, stir it, you know, add a little, add some spices to some butter or whatever, and pour it over popcorn, and it's really an amazing. It becomes kind of a blank canvas, so to speak. But I'm a sucker for sweets, and so we have a really great recipe for peanut butter cups, which is you oh, sort of, you yeah. melt, you melt peanut what? butter, you melt peanut butter with um, marshmallows and it kind of becomes this nice gooey texture, which then you mix in with peanuts and raisins and popcorn. And I think we even do like a shredded wheat cereal. Um, and it is, it becomes just a chewy, delicious, yummy, oh yeah, can't stop eating it kind of a snack. Oh, so, wow. um, you know, but you could do the same thing with Nutella, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you could add some Nutella, melt that down and then sprinkle, just drizzle it over popcorn. And as simple as that, you have this really fabulous um, uh, popcorn snack. So there, there are too many for me to even <laughs> try to name. And what's that website where we get all those wonderful recipes? Popcorn.org. We like to keep it simple. So popcorn.org, you go there. We're also on Facebook and uh, Twitter and, and uh, Pinterest is popcorn or popcorn central, sorry. Um, but go to the popcorn.org website and you'll find dozens and dozens and dozens of beautiful pictures and lovely recipes. And you'll now you're making me hungry and I'm going right. to have to go make some yep we all yep. are thank you so much for your time wendy and a for pleasure. spreading our and enjoying our, our enjoyment of popcorn our love of again that's popcorn.org for those recipes wendy repels a representative for the popcorn board a nonprofit organization formed by congress in 1998 to spread awareness of american popcorn and its versatility have you downloaded the BYU Radio app yet? If not, it's free, available in whatever application store you use. Thank you for listening to The Lisa Show.